This morning we're reading from Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 2. Uh, just before this, Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, and they went on from there to teach and preach in the cities. And beginning with verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman there has, been, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. We can start saying that now, right? It's close enough? Um, Okay, let me open us in a word of prayer. Um, I'm going to, let me make an announcement first. I hate doing announcements as prayers or praying as announcements or something. So our previous pastor, Daniel Holmquist, had um, resigned from the church in New Jersey, and he had been candidating at a church in um, Connecticut. And just a moment ago, we got the text, he's signing his acceptance letter. So he has found a, a new church home, a good place to, to continue to minister. So uh, that's exciting, but now there's all this transition and a lot of change. So I just didn't want to spring that in a prayer, but uh, I'm going to be praying for that because I think it's pretty amazing. So let, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, we do put our hope and our trust in Christ, and that's what faith means is to put our hope and our trust nowhere else, not in our good deeds, not in our good intentions, not in our strength and ability, but Lord, we are only counting on being accepted into your presence because Jesus is there, and he said that we get to be with him. And so, Lord, help us to, to trust in Jesus, to put our hope and, and our faith nowhere else, um, 
to, to accept the things that come through life, but to remember that the ultimate is to be with Christ. And uh, Lord, that's, that's our hope and our desire. And so Christmas is especially meaningful because we didn't have to struggle up to heaven and find a way up the mountain and, and uh, sit and meditate or, or be good enough or anything. But Lord, you came down from heaven, left your throne of glory, took on the form of a servant, an infant, helpless, weak, and you came to us. And Lord, we're grateful for Christmas. So thank you for that. And Father, I want to pray, um, praise you for uh, leading Daniel to uh, the right church. I pray that this is a really good fit for him, that he's a blessing to the church and, and they to him. Um, it looks like it's a good fit. It sounds like it's a good fit. So thank you for the answer to prayer this morning, um, hearing that he's been accepted and that he will be their new pastor. So Lord, would you bless, bless Christ the Redeemer Church in Southbury, Connecticut, um, with uh, just an incredible gospel ministry. Lord, I pray that, um, that Daniel would be a blessing to them in that way, um, that uh, the, the good deeds, the good things that they've already been doing in Christ, the work that you've already been ringing, uh, bringing through them would be magnified as he goes there. But Lord, also, we pray for the transition. There's a number of things that need to end and things need to begin, and, and Lord, housing is a big one. Um, this is a terrible time to be looking for housing. Um, housing prices are way too high. The interest rate's way too high. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would lead the HomeQuest to a, a good home. I thank you for Calvary's willingness to let them stay an additional month, stay through January, so that have a time for transition. But, Lord, I pray that you would uh, provide for them on the landing end, provide something in, uh, in Connecticut for them. And uh, Lord, for his health care, as he finishes up his chemotherapy and, and uh, hernia surgeries and all those things, Lord, would you wrap those up as well and uh, let him transition to a new health care system and, and all of those things. So thank you again for uh, what you've done for them. And Lord, personally, I thank you for what Daniel has done in, in um, Lisa in my life, um, his, his ministry to us and his, um, his leadership, his mentoring, his friendship, and, uh, and Linda as well. And so we just want the best for them. And Lord, as we turn now to your word, we, we want to see Jesus. Um, just like the, uh, the, the uh, Gentiles that came and asked, uh, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Lord, that we're in that same boat. We're those same people. And so, Lord, we pray that um, John the Baptist would be pointing us to him as well this morning. And uh, so, Lord, we're, we're grateful for your word. Speak to us now through what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Jonathan's, you know, read a little bit from the beginning. I'm going to preach primarily from verse 11, but it does kind of set this up. So I need to kind of set the tone for what's happening here. We're in Advent. We're in Advent with John the Baptist. We've been looking at different things that the Bible has to say about John the Baptist and help us understand who he is. One of the most important places to find out who John the Baptist is is from the lips of Jesus. And so that's why I thought we would go here is we'll hear Jesus explain John the Baptist to us. And so that, that's what we're going to do this morning. So we started off reading, and, and it's, it's this message from John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's been arrested because he went after Herod and explained, you can't have your brother-in-law's wife. This, this is illegal. Well, when you're a king in first century Judea, Palestine, you do whatever you want, and no plunky little prophet from the desert is going to tell you otherwise, and so he gets in jail. Um, so John is now in prison and he writes to, or he sends his disciples to Jesus with this really important question. He says, are you the one or are we looking for another? 
And so some people think about that and they say, well, John's faith is failing him. He's beginning to question. Well, I don't think that's really the, the truth because remember it's John the Baptist who pointed at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's John the Baptist who baptized Jesus and when he came out of the water heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So I don't think his faith in Jesus is failing where he's doubting that, that he is who he says he is. The reason you, he asks these questions is you have to understand the messianic expectations of the first century. Um, when you read the Old Testament and you look for what will the Messiah do, who will he be, it can be a confusing picture. Uh, there's a lot of information and we don't really understand how it fits together. So in the first century, there were different ideas of the Messiah's coming. Uh, some thought there would be three messiahs. There would be one who was priestly, who would come in and, and purify the temple and clean up the priests. And there was another one who was kingly, who would sit on the throne of David and rule. And then this, this son, of, uh, son of man, who would be this heavenly being who would come and judge. And so they thought there would, might be three messiahs or there might be two messiahs. They didn't understand how they all fit together. Um, and what they really didn't understand was that the Messiah's first coming would be followed by a second coming and there would be a gap, a time gap between the two. They didn't understand this. When you look at the Old Testament, sometimes the prophecies just blend together and it seems like when the Messiah comes, judgment, fire from heaven, and it's over. And so John is, is in that mindset. John's just a man like us, right? He is not, he's not a, div a divine being. He is just a human being like us. And though he was a prophet, though he was a mighty man of God, he's, he's like us. And so he's got these same notions in his head. Now, you know this is true because when they looked at Jesus, people didn't understand him. Even his disciples didn't get it. When he's about to ascend into heaven, they say, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? What they expected was, are you going to now put us on thrones and we're going to rule and we're going to take over the earth? And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> you got to go out and preach the gospel. So John is in that same kind of boat. So when he looks at Jesus and says, are you the one or should we look for another? He's not saying you're not the Messiah. He's not saying you're not this special person. He understands who he is. What he's asking is, which one of the three are you? Who, who are you going to be? Which, which one of the messianic roles are you going to fulfill? Because I'm in jail. I was not expecting this. I thought the Messiah was going to come and rule, and you're not ruling, and so I need to know, is there another one coming? That's his question. That's what he's asking. Um, so when he asked that, Jesus' response is amazing. He doesn't say yes or no. Did you notice that in the reading? Anybody could say yes or no to that question. It would be easy to say yes. As a matter of fact, during that, that time period around Jesus' birth, the years before, the years after, numerous messianic people showed up and said they were somebody special. They, they, they claim to be someone incredible, right? So when, um, when Paul is arrested in the temple toward the end of the book of Acts, the centurion says, aren't you the Egyptian who let all these people out? And he was supposed to be this, this important figure who's going to raise up and, and kick off the uh, Romans. There were all of these messianic expectations going on. And so Jesus doesn't say yes, though yes would be true, wouldn't it? That would be the right answer. I am the one. Don't look for another one. But instead, his answer is something that is even better. His answer is, look at what's happening. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached to them. He doesn't say, 
Yes, I am. He says, look at what's going on around you. Is this not messianic? Any of the other messiahs who showed up before, could they do these things? Did these things happen? Or did they just get a lot of people killed? So this is a much more authentic answer to report back to John, to let him see. Now, when Jesus said that, the, the list of things he gave was not some random inclusion. Um, at the very beginning of his ministry, this is in Luke uh, chapter 4, he, he comes back from the wilderness after being tempted by Satan, and he goes into a synagogue. And when he sits down, they hand him a scroll and ask him to read. So he rolls through the scroll, and he finds in Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, sat down, and said, this just happened. So this is the expectation of who Jesus is, and, and John would know this. So that list of what do you see going on? Yes, I am the Messiah. That's, that's the answer that he gives them. Well, this whole thing prompts what I really want to get to in the sermon. It sets up the, the question, who's John the Baptist? And so nobody asks, but Jesus just is aware that this raises that concern, raises that issue. And so beginning in verse 7, he says, And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? What did you think John was? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing live in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus begins with these rhetorical questions. He expects them to answer no. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind. Were you going out to find some new age guru who would spout um, soft affirmations and, and tell you what a wonderful person you were and, and how life is all set up for your success? Were you going to go out and find somebody who was going to blow with the, the direction of the wind? Well, no way, man. John was not like that. He was fiery. He says, well, of course not. That, that's not what you were going for. Well, what did you go out to look for? What were you expecting? A man dressed in soft clothing? Were you expecting a televangelist who's a rich man going to tell you how to be rich? People like that don't live in the desert. They don't eat locusts and honey. They live in their expensive mansions that you paid for, by the way. So you didn't go out to find somebody like that. You would go to a palace to find somebody like that. Well, then who did you go out to see? What were you expecting? A prophet. That's what I was expecting. Prophets live out in the wilderness. They eat locusts and honey. They wear uh, hide and, and leather belts. And Elijah, that's what I was expecting. And Jesus' answer is, I tell you, he was a prophet and more than a prophet. There was much more going on there. And so that's the picture that Jesus sets up for them. The, John is this prophet, but he's much more. And so he, he's going to now kind of unpack that for them. He wants them to understand who this guy is. So the next thing he does is he quotes scripture about John the Baptist. But listen to what he quotes. He says, this is him, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. When we quoted scripture about John the Baptist last week, what did we quote? Isaiah 40, behold, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Jesus quotes Malachi 3, and he quotes it to himself. He doesn't quote it for us. He says, this is, this is spoken to me. My, I send my messenger before your face. So he's quoting scripture about John the Baptist that's quoted to himself. 
As a matter of fact, if you go back and read uh, Malachi 3, he actually changed the wording. He, he reinterprets it because in Malachi 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Jesus is quoting himself about himself to explain who John is. I thought it was fascinating. I was expecting Isaiah 40 at this point. We didn't get that. So this is, this is the other aspect of John. He's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He is the one that Jesus needs to understand. He's preparing the way for you, for you to come in. So now this is where the, 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 uh, um, the question of who John is, what's he doing, kind of becomes to, uh, starts coming together. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So of everybody born of a woman, anybody here not born of a woman? Yeah, everybody that's ever been born has been born of a woman. That's just biological fact. So he says of anybody born of a woman, none, nobody has been greater than John the Baptist. How is John the Baptist greater than anyone ever born? Even up to that point in, in history, were there not greater people I mean, they built pyramids, they built Babylon, the Greeks created philosophy and, and mathematics, and there's just all of these different things. The Chinese were inventing incredible things, and, and nobody was greater than John the Baptist? We'll, we'll understand why that is, how he could be so great in a moment, but none has arisen that's greater than John the Baptist. Of all the human, human history, John the Baptist is the greatest man, and yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, does that mean John the Baptist is not part of the kingdom of heaven? I don't think that's what Jesus' point is. I don't think that's what he means. What he's saying is if you compare John on the field of humanity, John is the pinnacle. He is the greatest man. And yet, in the kingdom of heaven, the least in the kingdom of heaven is going to be even greater than that because the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. It, it reverses things. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Oops. Sorry. Skipped ahead in my notes. I almost said something that wouldn't have made sense yet, hopefully. It'll make sense, I promise. Um, so the kingdom of God is like that. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot be uh, in the kingdom of God. So born of man is one way to be born, but to be in the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. And when you're born again into the kingdom of heaven, then you're the greatest when you're the least. Why is that? Why do you think the kingdom is upside down like that? Why would it be that the most rich and powerful and influential in the world would be the least in the kingdom of God, but the weakest, the most marginalized, the most um, outside, the, the most ostracized would be the most important in the kingdom of heaven? Because the self-made in the kingdom of heaven can point to themselves. I built this. I, I built this huge company. I made all of this money. I, I created all of this stuff. And they draw glory to themselves. But the poor, the weak, those in need who come to God and find their satisfaction in him, they are the greatest because they bring God the most glory. They show that he was worth more than all that the world had to offer. That he met all of their needs in a way that the world could never meet them. And that's why the kingdom of God is upside down. So even though John the Baptist in a human scale was the greatest, in the kingdom, those who don't have all of those benefits, all of those gifts are even greater. That's who John the Baptist is. He, he's at this crux point, this, this really interesting place in history. 
So now verse 12 is where it gets a little challenging. Um, verse 12 says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. This verse presents problems in translation and then if you decide on how you're gonna translate it, it presents problems in interpretation. So here's the problem with the translation, that word for violence has suffered violence. That can be translated, the same word equally, no violence to the, bad word there. You don't have to mess with the text to make it say something else, can be translated in two different ways. And the NIV, the New International Version, is a great example of that. The 1984 edition of the NIV said, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. So the kingdom uses the violence, force, to ex uh, as it experiences progress and success, as it grows out. But in 2011, when they did the 2011 edition of the NIV, they changed it. And that version says, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. So, so do you see the difference? The kingdom uses the violence, or the kingdom is, is subject to the violence. Either way can be done. So what would make them switch? Why would they change? Why would they decide that one was wrong and one was right? Well, the same word for violence there is used in Luke 16, 16. It's a parallel kind of verse. Listen to how Luke 16, 16 is rendered. The law and the gospels, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Exact same word. It's clear from that context, it's the people who force their way in. It's not the kingdom that is, is forcing the people. So the context made it clear there. So can the context clear this up for us? Well, I think it can. There, we, we have to kind of understand all of the context of what's going on. So let's back up a little bit. John's in prison. John was not expecting necessarily to be in prison. Um, he is sent there and that's why he asked Jesus, are you the one? So John had, had made those announcements about who Jesus was, and now he's confused. Is What's going on? I don't understand. Why am I being persecuted? I thought the kingdom of heaven was coming, and, and this isn't the way it's supposed to be. So John was the prophet, and he winds up in jail. Now, remember, the verse begins with, um, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. How old is John? He was in, his, in Elizabeth's womb when Jesus was. These guys are about the same age. They're, they're no more than nine months at the most apart, right? John has not been in ministry for 50 or 60 years and is now wrapping it up and winds up in jail. So his, his time in ministry can't be that much. So what does it mean that since the days of John the Baptist, the, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence? That's not a long time. Well, it is if we understand what the days of John the Baptist means. That doesn't just mean the days that he's been alive or the days that he's been ministering, because John is more than a prophet. There's more going on there. So John has, has been doing something more. And we've got to look at the next verse to understand that days of John the Baptist, and then we'll come back and, and finish up there. Because verse 13 says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John's in jail. Um, the days of John the Baptist, this has been going on. What does that mean? Well, John is, the days of John the Baptist are the days of the Old Testament. 
the prophecies, the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. John is the capstone of that. He is the pinnacle of all of that Old Testament prophecy coming to, to roost in one man. So the days of John the Baptist are not just his life. The days of John the Baptist are all the prophets and the prophecies leading up to Jesus' first coming. That's the days. So has the kingdom been suffering violent during all that time, or suffering violence during all that time? Well, yeah, Jesus is pretty clear about this. He, he said, for example, in, at the end of Matthew, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He, he complains to the Pharisees over and over again, your fathers killed the prophets. There's a parable he tells about a vineyard. A vineyard owner builds a vineyard, and he plants it and gets it all ready, and then he sends workmen in. And after they're working this vineyard for a while, he sends servants to go get his share. And they beat the servants, and they, they stone them, and they wind up killing them. And so he sends his own son, and they say, let us kill him and let us have his inheritance. He's telling them, look, all throughout history, the prophets have come to Israel, and Israel has treated the prophets this way, over and over and over again. So let me go back and ask it again. Has the kingdom of heaven always faced violent opposition? Throughout the days of John the Baptist, the, the prophets and everything, yeah, it always has. It has always been opposed. It has always been frustrated when the kingdom of heaven comes. That's why John is in prison is because this is what's going on. So if that's true, if that's the, the way to read that, then go back to verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It, it's, it can't be resisted. It can't be stopped. But as it comes, as it penetrates this fallen and broken world, people resist. People will use violence to resist it. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That doesn't mean that the violent are now entering into the kingdom of heaven because they've been so violent. What that means is the violent take it by force is the violent oppose it. They, they, they try to tear it down. They try to grab hold of it and stop it through force. That's the picture that's going on. And so this idea that John's in prison he is, it really does prove that he is part of this long tradition of prophets. He is, he is one more in the line that Israel is going to oppose, that Jerusalem is going to arrest. Israel hasn't changed, um, even though their Messiah has come. So the last thing he says is, um, for the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And we talked about that. We covered that earlier. There's one question we need to address here because in John 1.21, they ask John himself. They said, what are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Specifically, he told them, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So why would John look them in the face and tell them, I am not Elijah? If Jesus just said, he is Elijah, did John get it wrong? No, I think what it is is the Pharisees got it wrong. They were expecting a different kind of Elijah. So John is saying, I am, no, I'm not the one you think I am. I'm not the person you think I am. Um, not that I'm not Elijah. So I just want to clear that up. Um, so that's, that's the next part, part of who John the Baptist is. He's part of that tradition of persecuted prophets. So then in verse 16, verse 16, 
Oh, yeah, because we covered the other ones. That's right. Uh, verse 16, he says, but, what shall I compare the, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to, each other, calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This last thing that Jesus says really is just meant to come back and draw all that teaching together and illustrate his point. It's just meant to make it clear what's going on. John comes pointing to the kingdom of heaven. He's saying there's one coming whose sandal I'm not fit to untie. He's pointing forward to the king of the prophets, and the people reject him. Why? Well, because he's too severe. He's too austere. He's out in the wilderness. That, that's, that's not how this is supposed to go. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. So then when the promised Messiah comes, when Jesus steps on the scene, Jesus the king brings the kingdom. You don't have a kingdom if they don't have a king. So when the king shows up, the kingdom is there. So the king shows up. And he brings the joy and the freedom and the blessing and the liberty and all of those things we said at the very beginning, recovering sight of the blind, setting those who are prisoners free. He brings all of that, and the people reject him because he's too liberal. He played a flute, and they didn't dance. What do they want? Do you, do you want austere? You don't, you don't want somebody who's hanging out with, with um, prostitutes and, and announcing the kingdom to those who are marginalized and, and outcast? And you don't want somebody who's calling you to repentance. What do you want? What they wanted was a kingdom of their own. They wanted somebody to come and step on the stage and go, you know what, you guys were right all along. You know, let, let's just elevate the party of the Pharisees to, to you know, powers of, uh, positions of power in the, in the nation and just call it a deal. And they didn't get it. And so they didn't like any of that. And so what happens at the end is Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That's why at the beginning he told John, look at what's happening. Look at the events that are accompanying what's gone on since I've come on the scene. What do you see happening around you? The, the deeds of, uh, that wisdom has brought justify. They explain who he is. So John comes and he fulfills all of these prophecies about the one who would point to Jesus. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, he fulfills all of those. He says, look, Jesus is coming. They don't like him. They reject him. Jesus comes and fulfills even more prophecies, even greater prophecies, and they don't like that. So Luke, in, in Luke 11, Jesus said, therefore, also the wisdom of God said, so wisdom being justified by her children, here's what she has to say. I will send them prophets and apostles, some whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of, blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. But wisdom is justified by her deeds. So it wasn't foolishness to send the prophets, to send the servants into the vineyard to get the, the owner's yield. That wasn't foolishness. That was wisdom. That was the wisdom of God coming. That was the wisdom of God to send John the Baptist, to call people to repentance, to call them out of knowing that violence has always faced those who announce the kingdom of heaven. That was wisdom to do that. Why is that wisdom? Because from the foundation of the world, 
All of this will be charged to that generation. They have persecuted the, the prophets. They have opposed them. That is just the way it has been. Now Jesus has come, and what do they do? They kill him. They kill the son. Why? Because they want the inheritance. That was what I meant about the Pharisees wanted to be elevated positions of power. So go back and let's, let's consider what does this teach us about John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? What does Jesus say he is? He says he's the greatest man that's ever lived. Why? Because he is the pinnacle of the prophets. All of the prophets could pronounce, they could point forward, they could say, there's one coming who will. Moses could say, there's, there's a, one amongst you who will rise up to be a prophet like me, even better than me. But all he could do was tell them. Isaiah could talk about the suffering servant and describe him in detail, but all he could do was use words. And so as all of these words about the prophet are coming, they didn't understand how they fit together. But John the Baptist was not like them. He wouldn't prophesy in that way. His prophecy would be, behold the Lamb of God. He would point at the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. It would all come together in who he is. So John is the greatest of all the people because he got to point. He got to be the one who pointed at Jesus and say, this is the fulfillment. This is all of this. And just as a quick aside, the, the, early ch- the, the pre-Christ church, if you will, couldn't understand how all of those prophecies fit together. And so they came up with different schemes for what the first coming of Jesus would be like. They, they didn't understand this gap between his first coming and his second coming. So when it comes to eschatology, the end times, when Jesus is going to return, we've got a whole batch of different promises, prophecies, visions, and we don't understand how they all fit together. And so if there's differences of opinion on this, we need to have a little grace on that because they messed it up before. We're currently messing it up. When it happens, we'll all go, well, of course it should be like that. That's exactly right. Because it's, it, we have history. We have you know, precedent for this. So when John comes, he, he is the example again of the oppression, the opposition that the advancement of the kingdom is going to face. And so what happens with the apostles and the prophets? As they go out, they face the same opposition. The kingdom of heaven continues to advance after Jesus comes. It continues in a different way through the sending of the, the, the church throughout the world, and we face opposition. John showed us that. He, he pictured that for us. He prepared us for that. But he's the one who went before Jesus and prepared his way. And that was the promise to Jesus in that. So John the Baptist is greater than all the people. He, he is more important than anybody who's ever lived. But in the kingdom of heaven, he's not that big a deal. The least of us, the people that you would think are the most marginalized, not that important in church not that important in, in the world, those will be the big ones in, in the, the kingdom of heaven when we get there. So just think of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is so poor, he's so sick, he's so unable, he lays at the gate of the rich man and dogs lick his wounds. He can't even stop the dogs from doing that. But what's he doing in heaven? He's reclining in Abraham's breast. He's relaxed. He is receiving his reward. And the rich man who blew him off and, ah, you're not important enough for me, can't even get under my table and eat scraps, he's suffering. The least will be the first, and the first will be the last. That's the promise. And John the Baptist fits into that equation. He speaks picturing that for us as well. So Jesus' estimation of John the Baptist is the greatest and the least at the same time, the most important and the most opposed. 
So John's question from prison, are you the one or should we look for another? The lesson he just gave explains all of that to John. Yes, I am. Don't look for another. You're in prison for a reason because wisdom will be justified by her deeds. Wisdom will accomplish what's going to happen. John, you didn't fail in your mission. The kingdom of heaven is still coming. It has always received opposition. It will continue to receive opposition. So this Christmas, what is the answer to this opposition? What is the answer to all the violence, all the, the brutality that the kingdom of heaven faces? Is it power and might? Is it, is it a, a reigning king on a white horse with a sword? It's a baby in a manger. You can't get weaker. If Mary walked away and ignored him, Jesus would have died. That's the most needy, the, the lowest possible in, the, in the, the, the world, is to be this infant who can't do anything. And that's who Jesus chose to came, come and be. That's how you defeat this power. That's how you defeat this violence and this opposition, is not through bold strength and, and we have to take up our arms and fight, but through weakness. Why? Because wisdom is justified by her deeds, by what she accomplishes. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for explaining to us who John is, who John was, and what he accomplished. Even though his end was tragic, his death was senseless, um, it was because of a foolish vow, monopolized, utilized by a, a greedy woman um, to manipulate a king. But Lord, what you accomplished through John the Baptist is amazing. Lord, would you help us to remember that through our weakness, your strength is made perfect. It's made sh full. It's, it's shown to be everything that it can be. And so, Lord, help us to not run from our, our weakness, um, not multiply it, not seek it out, but, Lord, to recognize that in the areas you have intentionally made us weak, that's where your strength can show because the least in the kingdom are the greatest. And, Lord, to think again that that the opposition to this violence was an infant, is an amazing thing. Lord, your kingdom is so incredible, so upside down, so not what we anticipate, and so much better than everything we thought it could be. Thank you for coming. In Christ's name, amen.